We come to Ephesians 3, and Paul beginning to marvel at the mystery that is this ship of Zion, and getting on board. And he's about, when we get through this passage, he's about to launch into one of his prayers that are interspersed throughout Ephesians and are so powerful. I mentioned before that Ephesians is different than Paul's other writings. Um, Paul's usually very uh, punctiliar, brief, covers a lot of ground, moves fast, and he's covering some very lofty ground in Ephesians, but the whole style, he's, he's definitely caught up in like a poetic moment. The whole way he writes the letter with these, in one sense, meticulously crafted, but in other ways, run on sentences, because he's like, you can't stop. I can't put a period here. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one thought. And it just flows from one thing into the next. Um, And as he gets to Ephesians 3, he starts talking about this thing that we now know as the church. And church wasn't a religious term to those people. It is to us now after all these centuries. But it really just meant the assembly. That's why it's kind of ridiculous for us to talk about being part of the universal church, but not getting up and going and assembling with a local group. That, that's contradictory to the original hearers. That makes no sense. I mean, yes, it's true. There's this invisible body that if you know Christ, you're part of. But to think you're part of that body and that you wouldn't feel the energy to just get up and assemble. It, that's not a church. That's not an assembling. Um, and when Paul starts trying to explain what he's doing through this thing we call church, what Jesus is doing, it gets pretty powerful. So as you look at the church, last week we were looking at the foundation and building on this foundation of this generation of eyewitnesses that saw Christ, these apostles, these prophets, and Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. And then he transitions into, for this reason, Ephesians 3.1 everything he's just said, for this reason, which brings us to why church? For this reason. (laughs) Why church? Why do I do what I do? I sent these questions out earlier in the week. We're going to talk through them in the sermon. How do I view church? How am I making the church look to the angels? Am I an accuser of my brothers and sisters? Angels have seen that guy. That's not anything new to them. They've been listening to accusations for thousands and thousands of years. How am I making the church look to the angels? It's easy to criticize the church. Do you realize how easy and actually intellectually lazy it is to just criticize the church? Much less just criticize people. That's not hard. Now, critique, constructive critique, that's different. But how am I making the church look to the angels? I wouldn't be too quick to play Satan's role. I don't want his payment for the job he's doing. How am I making the church look to the angels? Is there a disconnect between what I tell myself my purpose is, because I know my Bible verses, and what my actions tell me my purpose is? Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Why church? So your first question, and you got points on the back of your bulletin, you follow along, but your first question, why do you do what you do? Especially related to your beliefs. And these are just meant to be food for thought. 
Um, and I may ask for a testimony a little bit later since we sang that. <laughs> somebody give somebody testify. Um, but um, I want you to be reflecting on this. These questions were sent out you know, a couple days ago and try to let them percolate, not just today, but in the upcoming days. Why am I doing what I'm doing? There's a real push because you know, our culture especially now is really beating up organized religion to just talk about, well, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. Actually, the data, at least what I've read, and these are academic journals, is that so spirituality doesn't even help you. <laughs> it doesn't actually do anything when you just talk about being spiritual. What actually helps people process through injustice, trauma, abuse, um, actually take a stand for something positive and constructive is if, if, it if that spirituality translates to something that on a human level we would call religious practice. People who actually practice their faith. Does this sound like James? Don't tell me about your spirituality. Spirituality without practice is dead. <laughs> Spirits, obviously, have spirituality. And it comes back to, wow, I feel like I'm being so spiritual, but I don't even show up at a religious practice of my faith. We really shouldn't say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. We should say Christianity is not just a religion. Religions are about practice. And so we really kind of explore our motivation. Just explore your motivation and why you do what you do. Paul said, for this reason, here's why I do what I do. And it's everything he just said in Ephesians 2. And that we are God's worksmanship. We're not saved by doing good works. We're created to do good works. The fact that we don't do them a lot of the time is revealing that we need to be saved. And we are his worksmanship. We are his poem. We are his masterpiece. And so we're supposed to go out and be doing things, but here's where the trap comes in for us when it comes to works. The problem is not works. It's that we tend to define works as performance. And you can perform, but not have the underlying virtue behind it. Virtues rhyme with God's heart. Works are what should be coming from that. It's, you know, it's the brilliance of Paul saying the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is and he doesn't mention a single thing you do. He mentions being loving, joyful, patient, kind, faithful. None of the, this is not any measurable. <laughs> Will it show up in your actions? Yes, but he's not saying, you know, you're filled with the Spirit when you show up for church. Now, if you're filled with the Spirit, will you show up for church more often than not? Yes. Fruit is generated by the nature of the being. Works are things that we can do or not do. Virtues are internal, and then 
overflow. And that's what Paul's getting back to when he says, it's not that the works will ever save you. If you're rhyming with God, you're going to do them. If you don't do them, it might show that you're not rhyming with God in your being. And then what's going to save you from that? It's not going to be your works that you sometimes do and sometimes don't do. It's getting deeper and exploring your motivation. Works are external to me. Virtues, fruit of the Spirit, are internal. And Paul's talking about that and all the things that God's doing through people and says, that's my motivation for this reason. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. That's not an exaggeration. The things that led to Paul getting arrested in the book of Acts weren't even that he was necessarily preaching Christ. It was that he was preaching Christ and he didn't have to become a Jew first. That's what got his countrymen so angry. Read the book of Acts. We just read through it with my family. You can see it again and again and again. They would like listen to him and maybe agree, maybe not agree, or we'll hear more. And then he'd talk about the Gentiles coming right in and going beyond his ethnic group, treating them truly as having equal access, getting above that, and then, bam, then. Then all the accusations were made and the assassination attempts and he got arrested and put under house arrest from which he's writing this letter. So when, he sa- so when he says, for the sake of you Gentiles, I'm in jail because I went outside my ethnic group and my ethnic group turned on me. That's like actually what happened. And so he goes on a bit of a tangent, but it's not a tangent. Some of your translations even put like a dash because <laughs> it's this long tangent, but he's explaining a bit of why. What is God doing? And I'm trying to align with God and what God's doing. And he says, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace. Now, if you're a little bit more old school or King James only, you'll get that word Dispensation. And one of the questions I get most often as I hand prospective new members our constitution, tell them, no pressure, take your time, read it, jot notes, questions, what do you agree with, what do you don't agree with, when you're ready, then sit down and talk, if you want to think about joining. And one of the most common questions I get is, what is dispensationalism? That's that word in our constitution. It's from this, it's from this passage, where Paul talks about this administration of God's grace kind of the ways the household's running right now. People have always been saved by grace through faith, but God's salvation plan unfolds. And where are we in that unfolding? And understanding that kind of big picture, you can go crazy with it and start arguing about whether they're seven or eight or nine or 2.3 or (laughs) dispensations. That's totally a mistake of getting too hung up on that. But when you look within the text, you certainly see a very clear one between God targeting the Jewish people and yes, welcoming Gentiles, but they come through this way. And that's all what we kind of call our Old Testament, but really our Old Testament, it's better to look at it as the patriarchs, the old covenant, the new covenant. Because there were always people before Moses. (laughs) Um, And there were always people before Abraham. And so they weren't Jewish. Um, 
you know, God was working with people. But then when Christ shows up, there's a change in the administration of God's salvation. Not a change in how people get saved. Abraham was saved because he believed God's word. But the right interpreting of Scripture really depends on getting within the narrative itself and the story of Scripture itself and, and kind of having at least some sense of where am I in this unfolding and make sure I interpret it accordingly. That's this administration that we're in. And Paul feels a, a need to draw attention to that and really emphasize it in these verses because there's a mystery made known to him by revelation as I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Mysteries are things that we don't figure out on our own. You can't. God reveals them, and you're like, wow, okay, so based on that, how do I need to think? What's my motivation? How does that need to change me? I don't need to try to like get above the mystery and analyze the mystery from my superior intellect. It doesn't work that way. I have to accept what it says and then use my intellect to interpret it correctly. It's kind of the understanding principle that Nicole talked about. Maybe you'll understand later, maybe you won't. But <laughs> what was said was pretty clear, and I kind of just need to move forward with that. Um, so as you explore your motivation and you work through those verses and you get to this mystery, He's pretty clear that it was not really made known in previous generations. It's alluded to, Paul quotes Old Testament passages to let people know that the prophets saw this coming, but they're just little snippets. But it has now been revealed, and here's the phrase again, to his holy apostles and prophets. What did he just said at the end of chapter 2? Built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. He's not talking about Old Testament prophets here, though they got snippets of it. He's talking about since Christ showed up, the cornerstone. You have these apostles and prophets. It's now been revealed. We need to get on that ship of Zion and move forward. And here's what it says, that the Gentiles, the word Gentile is, if you like hyper-literally translated it, ethnic. <laughs> Ethne. That's what's translated Gentiles. So he's saying, the mystery is that all the other ethnic groups <laughs> are fellow heirs. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through that ship of Zion, through the gospel. All the ethnic groups. And of this gospel, this good news, I was made a minister. The Pharisee of Pharisees is turned around and said, yeah, yeah. here, Paul, think this one out, you genius. <laughs> you who were so zealous for your ethnic group, your culture, your chosen people. You're not going to have any success with them. You're going to go to every other ethnic group. Peter, raised in Galilee of the Gentiles. You're going to go to the Jews. Now, Peter ultimately ended up with Gentiles too because the Jewish nation rejected it. They got judged. Peter ends up in Rome. 
But in the early days, God was being amazingly counterintuitive to us. And he's challenging us to do something. And what Paul was doing by the time you get to verse 9 is your second question. How do you view church? How do you view the assembly? How do you view what we're trying to do here? However poorly we're doing it, how do you view it? You know, all the people that get so frustrated with the church and bail and stop assembling, I have a short answer. I like the thing I'm doing, however poor it is, more than the thing you're not doing. That's just... We need to stay in the fight. God's doing amazing stuff in this thing called the church. The assembling. To preach to all the ethnic groups the unsearchable riches of Christ. And verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone. To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of that mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things. So how do you view church? We're supposed to be bringing to light the mystery of the church. Now remember this ethnicities component, which is huge in this chapter. Not huge in the way we think of it from our experience of white-black in America, but it has applications for that. Paul's not thinking about white, black in America when he wrote this. He's thinking about the Old Covenant, the Hebrew people, and then every other ethnic group coming in. And the good news from that. And we're supposed to be bringing that to light, making that known. The church is absolutely, where it has opportunity, contradicting its charter purpose when we're not diverse. I know if you're in Wyoming, it's probably going to be a white congregation. (laughs) But the church church doesn't intentionalize what Paul is saying here. That we need to get together, not just settle into our ethnic group, and really show that Christ is bigger than that. It's more spiritual than we want to say it. We want to say, well, it's cultural, even psychological. I have my preferred styles of worshiping. Yeah, I get all that. And you know what? Everybody's culture, everybody's preferred style of worshiping, everybody's soul or psyche has value. But we can't stop there. We have to get above that. And it is spiritual warfare. That's what he's about to say. We're not going to figure this out with some human political solution. Whatever part that might have to play in the solution when you try to apply it. We're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to engage our culture. But Paul goes from all this intense ethnic talking in context. He's been arrested. Read the book of Acts because he's gone outside his ethnic group and that's why he's in jail. And he's saying all this, and he's saying, I'm trying to show people what the church is supposed to be about. And then you get your third question. It's about how we're making God look to the angels. That's not the only purpose for the church, but in this passage, 
In the way Paul's writing it, if you dig down and look at it, it's obvious if we would just dare to say what the text says. He says right here in verses 8 through 11, to me, this, though I'm the least of all the saints, he had killed Christians. This grace was given to preach to Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Then verse 10. So that. That is a purpose construction. Here's the purpose. It's not the only purpose for the church, but it is an essential purpose of the church. That God is trying to show his wisdom to a target audience. And in this passage, the target audience is not you and me. What is it? Verses 10 through 11. I can read it. So that, for the purpose that, in order that, through the church, that's you and me, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities, not on earth, in the heavenly realms. Principalities and powers, rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. This was according to the eternal purpose that he, God, realized. What a powerful word. I realized it became real to me. in Christ Jesus our Lord. What are these rulers and authorities? Well, it's a topic that the church goes off the deep end on a lot. So then we just don't talk about it. And we say, oh, that's the angels. Well, oh, yes. The way we talk about angels, it is the angels. But scripture itself goes deeper than that. So are we all in on this thing called church? Or are we gonna stand apart? Because when you stand apart from getting all in on what Paul is talking about in this chapter, you're not getting above these principalities and powers. What are they besides angels? Paul's trying to be more specific where he would just said angels. We call all spirits angels, but you need to go a little deeper. And I want to take a ton of time with it. It's a faith facts kind of discussion or something like that. But... There is a background to principalities and powers, rulers and authorities. When you read the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, he talks about when God divided the nations. What's that? When did he do that? Tower of Babel in Genesis. But Moses is talking about that and that he set apart, and he says he divided the nations, and the proper understanding is according to the sons of God which are angels. But he reserved Israel as his own inheritance. That's right, it's in Deuteronomy 32. So you go back and you look at that and you say, well, when did he divide the nations? That's after the flood, Genesis 6 through 9. You get Genesis 10, you get the Tower of Babel, you get the Table of Nations in Genesis 10 and 11. God divided the nations and the Tower of Babel was an extremely satanic, demonic, antichrist attempt at a one-world global government. Is there a strong pressure for that today? Absolutely. Because both God and Satan want a one-world government. 
Just read Psalm 2. It's about who your king is going to be. Who can you trust with that? Psalm 2 says, I've installed him. I've picked my king. You didn't like him. You crucified him. But I'm not done with that guy yet. He's chilling. <laughs> but when I'm ready, he's going to come back and I'm going to install my king. And you can rage about it all you want. There's going to be a one world government. It's just, who's your king going to be? And Tower of Babel was Satan's first attempt to try to get that. And God frustrated it by dividing the tongues and languages so they couldn't cooperate. And they spread out, which is what he told mankind to do from the beginning. Spread out over the whole earth. And he divided them into the ethnic groups, nationalities, nation states that come and go. What Satan did with that was like, oh man, okay, well now what do I do? He took high-ranking spiritual beings and he spread them out among these different ethnic groups. And the scriptures tell us this. It's not the major theme, but if you read through what's right after the Tower of Babel and the Table of Nations, Genesis 12, the call of Abraham. Israel, he preserved for himself. And you go through, you can read through Daniel, especially Daniel 10, and you find out that out of all these princes and powers that are over all these different ethnic groups that Satan's using to try to infiltrate and control, but they have their turf wars. They're evil. They're jealous. They're territorial. When Jesus says, no one can deliver Satan by the power of Satan, can deliver from Satan by the power of Satan, you need to think of it like a pack of wolves fighting over meat. They fight each other. Satan keeps them in line because they're territorial and they're, you're just food to them. And they just want a body and they want a soul. Only, Satan, only Jesus can deliver you from the pack. And the way he delivers us from the pack is this thing called church. It's spiritual warfare. And Daniel tells us, because the messenger tells Daniel, the only one out of all these princes that stands for the people of God is Michael that God put over Israel, and you see in Revelation 12, and all those who love God and obey his commandments. And you see this in Pentecost when Christ ascends back to heaven, and the people on the day of Pentecost, whatever your perspective on tongue speaking, I'm not trying to get into that today, on Pentecost, it was a known human language, unknown to the speaker. When did God divide the human languages? When? Babel. When did he overcome the division? Pentecost, the church. So, how is the church making God look in that area? Are we showing these principalities and powers his wisdom? Well, let's make it a little more applicable for us because we're not going to change thousands of years of history. Are we showing his wisdom here? where we can make a difference. I think we are. I think God's pretty amazing. <laughs> and I think we need to celebrate that. And we need to make sure that we don't do anything to blow that up. Because the church is, as a whole is like really bad at doing this. <laughs> it's just it's obvious. We'd rather just settle into our culture, our ethnic group, our narrative, our story, and then point out why you're wrong when you don't agree with mine. 
Are we showing God's wisdom? How are we making God look to the angels? Can I hear a testimony about that? Someone want to say something? I'm not trying to corner you. I'm not going to belabor the point. But if someone wants to say something brief, I'll give you a moment for that. Joe Settles. Anyone else? Real quickly. We're about out of time. Yes, Tanya. Go ahead. That's one. You're good. Anyway, I should have never given you the floor. <laughs> um, look, how are we making God look? When you really look at that passage and you understand all these threads that Paul's pulling together, we, people freak out and go off the deep end and do all kinds of harm to the church when you get into what Paul would call worshiping angels getting too obsessed with what's going on in the heavenly realm. Our part is to put on the belt of truth, do the right thing, speak the truth, put on the gospel of peace, be peacemakers. We know what we're supposed to do in the role. But we also don't do any service to the church when we don't teach what the scriptures actually do say about them and just kind of lump it all together as angels. Almost nobody, proportionately speaking, a lot of people are talking about it, but as a percentage, 
talk about ethnic division from the perspective of spiritual warfare. But that is what Paul's talking about here. Just textually. It is what he's talking about. How can we just celebrate Ephesians so much and miss those verses? It is satanic. It hinders the church from showing God's glory. We need to show God's wisdom to the principalities and powers so that, and we close with this, your fourth question, is there a disconnect between what you say and what you do? Yes. <laughs> All of us have contradiction. And one of the biggest contradictions is when I get so critical of other people because they're not just getting on board. And your criticism's helping them do that, right? And who are you? to be beating up the bride. Okay, I'm not talking about constructive critique. I think I've been pretty direct in trying to give constructive critique today. But when we start causing enough people to feel like, man, you know, I don't know that you're really for me. At some point, am I gonna hear that and change how I engage with that person? Or am I just pointing out why they need to grow up? How grown up is that on my part? It's easy to think that we're up here and put ourselves above other people. Not that we, if we, we don't say we're doing that, but we do it all the time. And meanwhile, God's like, I am the one who's up here. And I came down here. <laughs> so are you going to align yourself with God's purpose? In whom we, we, with everything you said, Every ethnic group in Christ have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. I talked about this some in Sunday school, and I close with this. Paul was suffering because he went outside his ethnic group for Christ and for them. He was in jail. And he says... Don't lose heart over my suffering. It's your glory. Suffering is glory. What I mentioned in Sunday school, because it came up, and so I did it. So if you're in my Sunday school class, then you get that preview. We tend to think of the glory of Jesus when he was resurrected. Jesus said, the hour of my glory is when he was crucified. All the other stuff is going to take care of itself if he managed that well. When he was resurrected, he showed his power over death. He showed his power over Satan. He showed his power over everything else. But that wasn't the most glorious thing. The most glorious thing was when he showed his power over himself in the crucifixion and emptying himself. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he says in John 12, 23. Truly, truly, most literally, amen, amen, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour of my glory. You want to talk about culture shock? How about leaving heaven and waking up on earth? You want to talk about what it would have been easier for him to just stay in his culture? And all the way through it, having the power at any point to say, yeah, I'm done. Take me home. 
the self-mastery and the self-emptying when he had done nothing wrong to bring this on himself. There's no karma at work here. There's no sowing and reaping at work here. He's innocent. That's his glory. And Paul got it. Paul's not the example. Christ is. And he's like, for this reason. <laughs> How can that not change your motivation? How, especially as you name Christ. How can that not change your willingness to leave your culture, your preference, all that behind? Not because it's not beautiful. But because if you're not careful, it will divide the body of Christ. Paul was showing it. And there's a smaller application, and this is just God because Nicole brought up the child not understanding. It's the, the parent's suffering that results in the child's glory. Though the child doesn't understand it. It is a glorious thing when a loving parent subordinates their dreams, their ambitions, everything that they think would make them mean something in this world to change diapers and stay home and leave all that maybe for 30 years, if that's your calling. I'm not telling you what your calling is. And never really be noticed by the world. Maybe not even by the child until they get a lot older. But the parent has shown power over themselves by just embracing that unseen role. It matters not whether the child or the world ever acknowledges it. It is glorious nonetheless. Emptying is filling. Constantly trying to fill yourself leaves you empty. Align with God's purpose. He actually does want to fill you it just is so upside down to this world's values that it's like a crucifixion. So why church? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. Help us to really align with why you did this thing called church in the first place and how you showed us the way in the one who is the way, our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.